0: Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. The story you're about to hear is particularly heinous. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
1: Mr. Cobbins, you've indicated that you want to tell this jury what happened. Yes, sir. I'll go ahead and do that, sir. Yes, sir. My brother walks in with the girl. He, he got her by her arm and He's put his hoodie over her, and the uh, the hood of the the hood is over her head. Her, her eyes are blindfolded with a um, bandana, and he comes in. Every boy comes in behind him, holding the guy. The girl is got a, a bandana around her eyes and her hands bound in front of her. Um, he comes in with the guy, holding his arm. I notice the guy has a bandana around his around his eyes and his hands are tied behind him um sunday night he um he brings the girl out of out of his room and i noticed that she didn't have any clothes on from the waist down no shoes on no socks he takes her into the kitchen As he as he has her in the kitchen me and Vanessa and George he make all of us come in the kitchen in the back um utility room make us stand there for a minute so as we're all standing there he um puts his hand around he puts his arm around the girl neck Tries to kill her. Tries to choke her.
0: Shannon Gale Christian was born on April 29, 1985, in Nacogdoches, Texas. Shannon was an attractive young woman with piercing, light-colored eyes. She was a senior majoring in sociology at the University of Tennessee. Shannon's boyfriend, Hugh Christopher Newsom Jr., known as Chris was working as a carpenter while the two were dating. Chris Newsom was born on September 21, 1983, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Chris, a talented baseball player in high school, was a handsome young man with a chiseled face and a big smile. 21-year-old Shannon and 23-year-old Chris had been dating for about two months on the evening of January 6, 2007. On that evening, the couple were visiting Shannon's best friend, Kara Soward, who lived in an apartment in Knoxville. At some point, Chris and Shannon left to go to another friend's house. The couple could have never known the terrible events that would unfold after leaving Kara's apartment that night. Shannon and Chris would never see their families again. Chris and Shannon never showed up to a birthday party they were supposed to attend the same night they visited with Kara at her apartment. Kara called Shannon around 9:30 p.m. to find out why she and Chris never showed up to the party. The call went unanswered. Kara waited a short period of time and then tried calling Shannon again. Still no answer. She sent a text to Shannon but again got no response. Kara continued calling Shannon throughout the evening, but Shannon never answered the phone. According to Kara, this was unusual behavior for Shannon. Kara arrived back at her apartment around 3.30am the morning after the birthday party. Upon arriving, she noticed that Chris Newsom's truck was there, but Shannon's forerunner was not. Kara thought this was odd because Chris usually drove when the couple went out. Kara went inside her apartment expecting to see Chris and Shannon there, but the apartment was empty. Around 10 o'clock that evening, Chris's best friend also tried calling Chris and Shannon's cell phones because he had begun to worry after the couple never showed up at the birthday party the night before. His calls went unanswered, so he and a friend drove to Kara's apartment complex where Chris's truck was parked in the parking lot. There was no sign of Chris or Shannon. Shannon's mom, Dina Christian, was expecting her daughter to arrive home the night of the party, but she never did. Dina was worried and couldn't sleep. She called Shannon's cell phone around 4am and left a voice message for her daughter. She called back again a short while after that, but this time, the call went straight to voicemail. Dina finally dozed off on the couch, but woke up about an hour later when her husband, Gary, got up for work. Dina continued trying to reach her daughter to no avail. The morning of January 7th, the day after the couple were last seen, A man named Roy Thurman arrived at work around 7.45 a.m. Thurman was an employee at a powder coating company called R&T Coatings. Thurman later reported seeing smoke in the area of some nearby railroad tracks, although he didn't think anything of it at the time. That same day, J.D. Ford, a locomotive engineer for Norfolk Southern Railway, was taking his train from Knoxville, Tennessee to Chattanooga, as he routinely did, Ford pulled out of the train yard shortly after noon and saw fire just off the train tracks. He observed what looked to be a log on the fire, but as he got closer, he realized it was a body. Ford stopped the train and called his dispatcher, who advised him to call the police. Ford contacted police and waited for them to arrive. At closer look, Ford could tell the body was that of a naked man who had been badly burned. Around 3.30 in the afternoon, Shannon's boss at the Westtown Mall called Dina to ask why Shannon never showed up for work that day. Dina was even more worried now because it was not at all like Shannon to miss work. Mary Newsome, Chris's mom, was also getting worried about her son who never came home the night before. Her worry escalated when Dina called her to ask her if Shannon was at her house. She also informed Mary that Shannon never showed up for work that day. The two worried mothers were putting two and two together and knew something was terribly wrong. When Mary hung up with Dina, she contacted police and reported Chris as a missing person. She was advised to check local hospitals, which she did, but nobody matching Chris's description had been seen. Dina Christian called her husband at work to let him know that Chris and Shannon were missing. She then contacted local hospitals to see if anyone matching Shannon's description had been admitted. Her search came up empty, so she called the police to report Shannon as a missing person. Unfortunately, since Shannon was an adult, Dina was informed that there was no law against her going missing. Dina then contacted her cell phone company and was able to get the location of the last cell tower her daughter's phone had pinged. The location was on Cherry Street, which was very close to Chipman Street, and the railroad tracks where a body had been found burning. The Newsom and Christian families decided to take matters into their own hands. They enlisted the help of their family members and friends and organized a search party. Dina decided to stay home in case someone called with information. The family members and friends divided up and began searching around the area where Shannon's last cell phone call had pinged a cell tower. Chris's friend, Josh Anderson, and Shannon's friend, Kara Soward, along with other people in their search group, came upon Shannon's abandoned forerunner. They contacted police to let them know that they had found Shannon's vehicle. While waiting for the police to arrive, they noticed that two stickers were missing from Shannon's forerunner. A Power T for the University of Tennessee and an orange North Face sticker had been removed from the forerunner which was found off the road in a grassy area. The front seats had been moved all the way back. Once the vehicle was opened, Josh and Kara both noticed mud inside. This was unusual because Shannon always kept her car very clean. Josh also saw a pack of Newport cigarettes in the car, but he knew that Chris and Shannon were not smokers. Dina said that Shannon always kept bags of clothes, her iPod, pictures, a stuffed teddy bear, and an overnight bag in her car. Dina said that Shannon would often spend the night with Kara because the two of them had similar work and class schedules, and oftentimes they'd ride together to work in school. None of the items Dina mentioned were in Shannon's vehicle when it was found. Dina also said she knew all of Shannon's friends, and none of them lived in the area of Chipman Street, where the forerunner was located. On the morning of January 8th, Two days after the couple went missing, detectives called the Newsom's to ask if they could swab some items in order to get a sample of Chris's DNA. Detectives compared the DNA sample with the body that had been found burning the day before. The DNA on the body was a match to Chris Newsom. Detectives returned to the Newsom home to deliver the terrible news. Chris had been murdered, but Shannon was still nowhere to be found. The abandoned forerunner was sent for processing and at first, Daniel Crenshaw, the evidence technician, thought the vehicle had been wiped down and that it would be difficult to get any fingerprints. But when he picked up a woman's jacket in the back seat, he found a bank envelope inside the pocket and it had several prints on it. One of the prints matched a 25-year-old man named Lamarcus Davidson, who lived at 2316 Chipman Street. Davidson's home was not far from the location where the forerunner had been found. Police obtained a warrant to search Davidson's home. On January 9th, three days after the couple went missing, Knoxville PD's Special Operations Squad arrived at Davidson's home and knocked on the door. When nobody answered, the squad announced themselves and broke down the door. The home was empty. The squad searched the home and discovered ammunition in the bedroom and a rifle in the closet. While securing the home, Commander Keith debeau saw a garbage can that looked quote, mishappen. He signaled Lieutenant Fortner over and both men approached the garbage can with weapons drawn. debeau slowly removed the lid, at which time he saw a human arm in an upward position. At closer look, debeau could see that it was a female covered in a floral bedsheet. The female in the garbage can was wearing a sweatshirt and a baseball cap. He looked closer, and Debo knew he had found Shannon Christian, and she was deceased. Items found inside the home on Chipman Street were believed to have belonged to Chris and Shannon. Police showed Kara a photo of some clothing they found in one of the bedrooms, and Kara confirmed these were the clothes Shannon was wearing the last time she saw her. Kara also identified Shannon's iPod and told police that neither she nor Shannon knew anyone in the neighborhood where Shannon's body was discovered. Chris's friend Josh also confirmed that neither he nor Chris knew anyone in that neighborhood. Evidence technicians began processing items police had found inside the Chipman Street home. They were able to match Davidson's fingerprint and a palm print white trash bags which were found placed over Shannon's head when her body was discovered. His prints were also found on the box which held the trash bags. Davidson lived at the Chipman Street home, so it was not surprising that his prints were found on these items. In addition to the trash bags and the trash bag box, Davidson's prints were also found on Shannon's pay stub, her blockbuster card, and a picture taken from her forerunner. During their investigation, police located a customer of Davidson's named Darren Williams. He was someone who bought drugs from Davidson. Williams told police he was driving toward Davidson's home sometime in January when he heard a vehicle honking. He looked around to see where the honking was coming from, at which time he spotted a Toyota 4Runner. He didn't recognize the vehicle, so he kept driving toward Davidson's home. When he pulled up, He saw that same forerunner pull up to Davidson's house just after he did. At this time, Williams saw Davidson get out of the driver's seat of the forerunner. Another man got out of the front passenger side, and a third man got out of the back seat. Williams thinks he saw a fourth man still inside the forerunner. When Davidson got out of the forerunner, he told Williams he didn't have any drugs to sell. Williams left but returned later to ask again if Davidson had any drugs but he was turned away again. During his second trip to Davidson's house, Williams saw the forerunner, but this time it was parked across the street in a gravel lot. Investigators also spoke with a man named Xavier Jenkins, who worked at Waste Connection, a company located on Chipman Street. Jenkins worked third shift at the company, which was from 1230 to 7 a.m. On January 7th, the day after Chris and Shannon were last seen, Jenkins was sitting inside his car at about 12:30 a.m., waiting for his supervisor to arrive and open the front gate. Jenkins told police he saw a white forerunner with its headlights on and parked in front of the house next to Waste Connection. Shannon's forerunner was actually silver, but perhaps it appeared to be white given that it was dark outside at the time. Jenkins said another vehicle was parked behind the forerunner. The address of the home was 2316 Chipman Street, Lamarcus Davidson's home. Jenkins recalled that the porch light was on as well as lights inside the house. He said there was a lot of activity going on inside the home. After about 15 minutes or so, Jenkins said he drove to a nearby gas station to call his supervisor, who told Jenkins he was running late. Jenkins went back to Waste Connection to wait for his supervisor to arrive. Around 1 a.m., he saw the forerunner pull away from the Chipman Street house. Jenkins told police he saw what appeared to be four black males inside the forerunner, and when they pulled away from the house, they slowed down to check Jenkins out. He said the four men were slumped down in the vehicle and staring at him as they drove past. After his shift was over, Jenkins and his supervisor clocked out and said the forerunner was now parked in the parking lot Next to Waste Connection, where Jenkins was always parked and waited for his supervisor before shifts. Nobody was inside the vehicle at that time. Jenkins would later be able to identify the car that was parked behind the Forerunner in a vehicle lineup. That vehicle would be traced to a woman named Nicole Mathis. While being questioned by police, Mathis said her cousin, Eric Boyd, had borrowed her car, a Pontiac Sunbird, on January 4th or 5th. She said Boyd never returned her car and on January 8th, she was scheduled for a job interview. On the 8th, Mathis went to the apartment of her aunt, Eric Boyd's mother, and Boyd was there at the time. Boyd told his cousin that the car had broken down, so Mathis tried to start her car and fluid poured out of the engine block. Mathis knew she needed to leave her car there, but wanted to gather some of her things from inside the car. Inside the car, she found a bag with bullets inside. Not wanting bullets inside her car, she threw the bag away. At the time she was gathering items from her car, she said Boyd came out of his mother's apartment and he was talking to someone on his cell phone. Mathis told police that she heard her cousin tell the other person on the phone that, quote, I might be in some trouble. On the evening of January 7th, one day after Chris and Shannon went missing, LaMarcus Davidson asked his ex-girlfriend, Daphne Sutton, to come and pick him up at his home on Chipman Street. He stayed overnight with Sutton and remained with her the following day as well. This was the same day a squad of law enforcement officers had gained entry to Davidson's home and discovered Shannon's body. The next day, January 9th, Sutton's mother called to tell her that Shannon's body had been found inside Davidson's home. Sutton told Davidson he could no longer stay with her, and she drove him to the Ridgebrook apartment complex and left him there. Davidson found Eric Boyd, and the two of them went to Daniel Lightfoot's apartment and asked if they could stay there. Lightfoot was a friend of Davidson's. Boyd called his friend, Kevin Armstrong, and asked him to come to Lightfoot's apartment. When Armstrong arrived, Boyd told him that he and Davidson needed help getting out of town. Armstrong had seen news footage about Shannon's body being found at Davidson's house, and he realized this was the reason Davidson and Boyd needed help getting out of town. Armstrong wanted nothing to do with them, and he left the apartment. Boyd continued calling Armstrong for help, but he had stopped answering Boyd's calls. The next day, on January 10th, Danielle Lightfoot saw news coverage about Shannon's body being discovered at Davidson's house. She told Davidson that he and Boyd needed to leave her apartment right away. She changed her mind and ended up telling Davidson that he and Boyd could stay for a little while longer, and then she left the apartment for several hours. When she arrived home that evening, around 9.30 p.m., Davidson and Boyd were still at her apartment. She told them to leave immediately. The two men left the apartment and went into the nearby woods. Boyd called several people he knew to try to get a ride out of town for Davidson. At this time, police only suspected Davidson, so there was no reason for Boyd to skip town. Boyd could not find anyone willing to give Davidson a ride. Around 3.30 a.m. the following day, Boyd and Davidson broke into a vacant house and used it as a temporary shelter to hide Davidson from police. Boyd eventually went back to his mother's apartment but stayed in communication with Davidson by phone. Boyd went back to the vacant house to bring Davidson some food and planned to come back later to bring more food. The police were able to trace calls between Boyd and Davidson and on January 11th, officers spotted Boyd and pulled him over. At the time he was pulled over, Boyd was on his way to the vacant house to bring Davidson more food. At first, Boyd claimed he didn't know Davidson he eventually changed his mind and decided he wasn't going to jail for Davidson, and he gave officers the address to the vacant house where Davidson was staying. Police surrounded the house and arrested Davidson without incident. Inside the house, police found a hooded sweatshirt jacket, a long-sleeved shirt, a Motorola cell phone, which belonged to Boyd, a cell phone charger, a pair of Tosco binoculars, and a pair of Nike Shox tennis shoes. Inside the pocket of the jacket, they found a 22 caliber Sentinel revolver, which was a violation of Davidson's parole. He had recently been released from prison and was on parole for carjacking. The owner of the vacant house confirmed that none of these items had been in the home previous to the break-in. Boyd was taken back to the police station for questioning and he provided his version of events. Boyd gave details pertaining to the murder of Chris and Shannon but claimed he only knew these details because Davidson told him everything. Boyd told investigators that Chris and Shannon were carjacked and abducted by Davidson and two other men. He said the couple were raped and murdered, but he was not present for the carjacking, the rapes, or the murders. Boyd said his only involvement was helping Davidson find shelter and bring him food. Boyd said he borrowed his cousin Nicole's car because Davidson, his brother, and their friend needed it because they owed money to drug dealers. During questioning, Boyd mentioned the names of two other men who he said were connected to the crimes. Boyd mentioned the names of Latulvis Cobbins and George Thomas. Cobbins was the half-brother of Lamarcus Davidson. Boyd stressed that all the details he was sharing were told to him by Davidson and that he had nothing to do with the carjacking, rapes, or murders. At the time Chris and Shannon were carjacked and abducted, LaMarcus Davidson was unemployed, broke, and selling drugs. His girlfriend, Daphne Sutton, had recently moved out of the Chipman Street home because Davidson was physically abusive toward her. Davidson's half-brother, 24-year-old Latalvis Cobbins, came to visit Davidson along with his girlfriend, 18-year-old Vanessa Coleman, and his friend, 23-year-old George Thomas. Cobbins, Coleman, and Thomas were also unemployed. None of them had a car or any money. Cobbins and Thomas were homeless, while Coleman actually came from a good home, but she chose a different path. Cobbins, Coleman, and Thomas had been freeloading off of Davidson, and he was growing tired of this. The day after Sutton broke up with Davidson and moved out, he told the houseguest, he had devised a plan to get them all out of their destitute financial situation. His plan was to carjack someone and he wanted his brother Cobbins and another friend named Eric Boyd to help. On January 7, 2007, this plan would be carried out. 34-year-old Eric Boyd borrowed a car from his cousin, Nicole Mathis. They used her car to look for their victim. And this is when they saw Shannon and Chris leaving Kara's apartment and getting into Shannon's silver Toyota 4Runner. As the couple were getting into Shannon's vehicle, they were approached by a vehicle with three men inside. Two of the men got out of the vehicle with guns drawn. At the same time, another vehicle pulled into the apartment complex parking lot, and this spooked the men. They panicked and forced Chris and Shannon into Shannon's SUV. The couple were bound, gagged, and blindfolded. The men drove off in Shannon's forerunner with the frightened couple inside. When they arrived at Davidson's home on Chipman Street, the couple were led into the house. Vanessa Coleman, Cobbin's girlfriend, would later say this is when she heard Davidson tell Thomas he, quote, was gonna need him to do something so he could trust him. Apparently, Davidson said this because the two men barely knew each other and also were not fond of one another what happened next would be anybody's worst nightmare. Chris Newsom was raped by one of the men thought to be Eric Boyd and then sexually assaulted again with an object. And all of this happened in front of Shannon. After the assault was over, Chris's ankles were bound with his own belt and his hands were tied behind his back. A sock was stuffed into his mouth, a bandana was wrapped around his face, A sweatshirt was placed over his head and tied around his neck with shoestrings. Shannon was tied up at this time with no way of escaping. Chris was forced to walk barefoot to some nearby railroad tracks, where he was shot in the neck and the back. While he lay almost lifeless on the ground, he was shot a third time in the head. The third shot was lethal. A comforter was used to cover Chris's body, and then it was doused with gasoline and set on fire. The perpetrators later gave conflicting stories about who actually took Chris to the railroad tracks and who shot him. Once Chris was dead, the men repeatedly raped Shannon inside Davidson's home. The attack on Shannon was especially brutal. She was raped vaginally, anally, and orally. The oral sexual assault on Shannon was so bad that a membrane in her throat was severed. The attack did not stop there. Shannon was either beaten or kicked in her genital region. It is believed that this portion of the attack was done by Vanessa Coleman, Cobbin's girlfriend. Shannon also suffered blunt force trauma to her head. After the brutal attack, Shannon was dragged into the living room where bleach was sprayed into her mouth in an attempt to get rid of any DNA evidence. Shannon was hogtied with strips of fabric from bed sheets and placed inside several large trash bags. She was still alive during this time. Her head was placed inside a white garbage bag, and then she was placed inside of a large plastic garbage can, where she was left to suffocate and die. After the murders, Cobbins, Coleman, and Thomas made their way back home to Lebanon, Kentucky. Stacy Lawson, a friend of Thomas's, went to visit the three of them, and she would later say that, quote, "...they didn't look like themselves." She asked Thomas what was wrong, but he didn't answer. The following morning, on January 11th, Lawson was pulling out of her parents' house when she was stopped by police. It's unclear how they knew she was connected to Thomas. When asked about the whereabouts of Cobbins and Thomas, Lawson first told police she didn't know where they were. Eventually, she gave police the address to Natasha Hayes' house, where the men were staying. Police then took Lawson to the police department for further questioning. Law enforcement officers from the ATF and several local agencies surrounded Hayes' house and advised everyone to come outside with their hands up. Hayes and Coleman complied, but Thomas did not come out. The ATF entered the home and yelled for Thomas to surrender, which he finally did. Police searched Hayes' house but didn't find any firearms. The next day... A friend of Hayes's came over to help her clean the house. While there, Hayes’s friend found a gun inside a box. Hayes called Kentucky State Police and they retrieved the gun, a 22 caliber revolver. Lamarcus Davidson, Latalvis Cobbins, George Thomas, and Eric Boyd were all now in police custody for their alleged involvement in the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Chris Newsom and Shannon Christian. Police would eventually catch up with Cobbman's girlfriend, Vanessa Coleman, for her alleged involvement in the crimes. The five of them were charged with numerous felonies and would all eventually go to trial. But the trials resulting after these brutal crimes would not be ordinary by any means. AMC Shudder is a premium streaming video service with the best selection of horror and thrillers. Shudder's thriving community revels in all things provocative, evocative, and dangerous. As a member, you can banter with Shudder on social media and enjoy member-only perks, such as exclusive releases and VIP movie screenings. You can stream chilling thrillers, horror, and suspense for only $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. Shudder has the largest selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. It's like the Netflix for horror. New spine-tingling content is added every week. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices like iPhone, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Roku, Android devices, and more. Shudder's vast selection of content, extensive international library, and range of genres is unparalleled. Shudder features exclusive titles like Rob Zombies 31 and Wolf Creek, the series by Greg McLean and Tony Tilsey. And don't miss Shudder's newly released Mandy starring Nicolas Cage, which hit Shudder on November 29th. Shudder also has an Alfred Hitchcock collection. I was recently brave enough to watch The Mimic on Shudder. Mimic is a horror movie about a mother of a missing child who takes in a lost girl she found in the woods, and she begins to wonder if the little girl is even human. My husband dared me not to hide behind a pillow the whole time, and I might have lost that bet. The Mimic was really creepy and had me rocking back and forth in the corner for a solid hour afterward. Ishers, if you'd like to try Shudder free for 30 days, head over to Shudder.com that's shudde and enter promo code MURDERISH. That's Shudder.com and enter promo code MURDERISH. Having a
2: couch pillow handy is strongly advised and don't watch alone. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Nothing is more annoying than having an exciting day planned only to wake up to bad allergies. First world problems, I know, but sometimes allergies ruin my entire day. If you suffer from allergies, I know you understand my struggle. No one wants to go through the day sounding like they're talking underwater. Between my daughter's school events, Zoom meetings, and podcast recording sessions, I don't have time to deal with allergy issues. And who wants to listen to a podcast when I sound like this? Luckily, you don't have to, because I use Astapro for quick and effective relief,
0: Lamarcus Davidson was charged and indicted on 46 counts for his alleged crimes against Chris Newsom and Shannon Christian. Davidson's felony charges included two counts of premeditated murder, 20 counts of aggravated rape, four counts of aggravated kidnapping, and two counts of theft and other serious charges. Davidson's half-brother, Latalvis Cobbins, and friend, George Thomas, were charged and indicted on the same 46 counts as Davidson. Cobbins was also charged with assault against a correctional officer for an alleged incident that happened while he was awaiting trial. Cobbins' girlfriend, Vanessa Coleman, was charged and indicted on 40 counts, including one count of premeditated murder relating to the death of Shannon Christian, four counts of especially aggravated kidnapping, 20 counts of aggravated rape, two counts of theft and other serious charges. Eric Boyd's situation was a bit different than the other defendants. State police had always believed that Boyd had taken part in the sexual assaults against Chris Newsom in particular, and the murders, but they didn't have the necessary evidence to pursue charges against him. The burning of Chris Newsom's body destroyed crucial DNA evidence. Due to the lack of evidence, Boyd was charged in federal court as an accessory after the fact for helping suspects evade police. The prosecution had a strong case against the four defendants being tried in state court. There was evidence tying each one of them to serious crimes against the victims. Perhaps the most damning evidence was the fact that Shannon's body had been found inside the home of one of the defendants. In addition, Davidson's prints were found on the bank envelope which was found inside Shannon's forerunner. Multiple witnesses saw Davidson, Cobbins, Boyd, and possibly Thomas inside Shannon's Forerunner. Numerous items belonging to Shannon were found inside Davidson's residence. Additionally, fingerprints and DNA from Davidson, Cobbins, and Coleman tied them to the crime scene. Expert witness Patricia Rezig testified on behalf of the prosecution. Rezig was a firearms examiner for the Knoxville Police Department. She examined two 22 caliber revolvers, Rezig testified that both revolvers displayed similar characteristics to those which were alleged to be used to kill Chris Newsom, and this was based on an examination of his skull. Rezig, however, could not say with certainty that these revolvers were used to kill Newsom, and this was a letdown for the prosecution. Jennifer Millsaps, a forensic scientist who worked in the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation's Serology and DNA Unit, testified that she found sperm in vaginal and anal swabs taken from Shannon, both with profiles consistent with Davidson. Millsaps also found a DNA profile consistent with Cobbins from an oral swab taken from Shannon. She also found a DNA profile matching Cobbins from stains found on Shannon's white camisole. Semen was found on an anal swab taken from Chris Newsom, however, It did not contain the sperm necessary for a DNA profile. Millsaps also found DNA on strips of material used to bind Shannon's wrists. DNA found on the strips of material matched Vanessa Coleman. The Knox County Medical Examiner, Dr. Dorinka Miluznik-Polchan, conducted autopsies on Chris and Shannon. She said that Chris had sexual trauma present, which was shown by bruising and swelling around the anus. Her findings showed that Chris had been repeatedly sodomized with an object. Evidence showed that he was either dragged or forced to walk barefoot, with his ankles bound, to the location where he was murdered. The bullet removed from Chris's neck did not kill Chris, the medical examiner testified. The gunshot to Chris's lumbar area severed his spinal cord and would have paralyzed him from the waist down. The third gunshot, Maluznik Polchan testified, was done with the muzzle of the gun pressed up against Chris's head at a downward angle, which indicated that Chris was most likely forced to kneel down on his knees before he was shot. Chris was over six feet tall. The bullet entered Chris's head in an area right above his ear, went through the right hemisphere of his brain, and then down the brain stem. The medical examiner believed Chris was shot first in the neck, then in the back, and finally in the back of his head. Chris's body was found nude from the waist down, and over 80% of his body was, quote, severely charred. It was determined that Chris would have been dead prior to being set on fire due to the low amount of carbon monoxide in his blood and lack of soot in his airways. In regard to Shannon, Dr. Malusnik-Polchan said that she was found in a, quote, forced fetal position inside of a large trash can. A curtain was tied around her thighs and strips from a bedsheet were tied around her ankles. Shannon's head had been forced down onto her knees before her body was placed inside five large trash bags. A small white plastic bag was then placed over her head, which would have caused her to slowly suffocate to death. As was the case with Chris, Shannon was nude from the waist down. The medical examiner testified that Shannon was alive when she was placed inside the large garbage can, but she was tied in such a way that she could not breathe or attempt to get out. Shannon's cause of death was a combination of mechanical and positional asphyxiation, which most likely occurred in the afternoon or evening of January 7th. The medical examiner found that Shannon had been repeatedly raped vaginally, anally, and orally. DNA analysis would link Davidson and Cobbins to the sexual assaults on Shannon. Bleach had been sprayed into Shannon's mouth and vaginal area in an attempt to get rid of DNA. The medical examiner described Shannon's last few hours as, quote, horrific and unthinkable. Dr. Malusnik-Polchan said that Shannon had been tortured for several hours and beaten over the head with an unknown object. Larry Miller, a handwriting expert, testified about a journal found inside the Lebanon, Kentucky home, where defendants Coleman, Cobbins, and Thomas were found. The journal was found inside of a purse which also contained items belonging to Shannon Christian. Miller testified that there was no doubt that the journal was written by Vanessa Coleman as she had a very distinct style of handwriting. Here are some journal entries for January 8th and 9th, the days after the murders. Quote, Wake up and look around. What's really going on? I don't really have a clue, or at least I used to be able to say I don't. But as much as I've seen and observed and learned, I know exactly what's going on. Although a lot of this is new to me, life is a trip, but it's amazing how things play its own role. Life is interesting and full of surprises. Even very unexpected things happen that you don't expect. The journal entry was signed, Nessa. Here's another journal entry from January 9th. Quote, Last night was one of a kind. We stayed with a crackhead that was cool as hell. It snowed a little bit, but it's already melted. Let's talk about adventures. I've had one hell of an adventure since I've been in the big TN. It's a crazy world these days, but I love the fun adventures and lessons that I've learned. It's going to be a long, interesting year. Haha, day two, the ride home. Haha, we had a crackhead bring us home. The whole way back she was complaining because she didn't have any drugs. She was driving kind of crazy, but it was straight though. Daphne Sutton testified that she and Davidson had been dating for a couple months and then she moved in with him at the home on Chipman Street. She brought her two children with her. Shortly after she moved in, Sutton said that Davidson began physically abusing her and they were arguing a lot. Due to the turmoil, Sutton moved out of the Chipman Street home around Thanksgiving of 2006. The following month, Sutton moved back into Davidson's home but did not bring her children at that time. Sutton said Davidson began abusing her soon after she moved back in. Sutton said that on Friday, January 5th, she was at the Chipman Street house along with Davidson, Cobbins, and Coleman. She said she and Davidson got into an argument and she said Davidson began choking her and throwing her up against a wall. Cobbins and Coleman did nothing to protect her. Sutton left the house shortly after the incident and stayed with a friend. Sutton returned to the Chipman Street home after Davidson contacted her through friends on Sunday, January 7th. Sutton arrived between 6 and 7 p.m. and noticed that Davidson had hung a blanket in the doorway leading into the living room. Sutton tried to get into the bathroom to gather some of her things, but the door was locked. Davidson told Sutton that Vanessa Coleman was in the bathroom. Believing that Davidson was hiding another woman in the bathroom, Sutton attempted to get into the bathroom another way, but Davidson grabbed her by the arm and stopped her. Sutton then went outside to the porch, at which time Davidson handed her a bag of clothes and said they were brand new. Sutton testified that she saw Cobbins, Thomas, and Boyd in the home at this time. She did not see Vanessa Coleman. When Sutton arrived back at the house where she was staying, She began going through the clothes inside the bag that Davidson gave her. Inside the bag, she found a red skirt which was not hers. Sutton also knew that Davidson did not like when she wore the color red due to his gang affiliation. She also testified the skirt was not brand new. Sutton found pants inside the bag which were not her size. She told Davidson to come get the clothes and when he did, Sutton noticed that Davidson was driving a Toyota 4Runner with an orange letter T and a North Face sticker on it. Davidson later asked Sutton to meet up with him, and when she did, she noticed he was wearing tennis shoes which were too small for his feet. She identified the shoes as being Nike shocks, the same shoes Chris Newsom was wearing when he was kidnapped. The defense had an uphill battle ahead of them. Almost immediately, the defendants began pointing the finger at one another for the crimes. Davidson's defense attorney tried disputing the murder charges by arguing that Chris and Shannon were at the Chipman Street home to buy drugs from Davidson. He further argued that there was no kidnapping or robbery because the couple were there voluntarily. A small amount of alcohol was found in Shannon's system and a mix of marijuana and amphetamines was in Chris's system. It's possible the amphetamines were from the prescription drug Adderall Davidson's attorney said the three visitors from Kentucky were the perpetrators, not his client. This enraged Chris and Shannon's family and friends who thought the defense was blaming the victims for what happened to them. Davidson blamed his brother Cobbins and Thomas for everything, saying he did feel guilty, but only because he pressured them to pitch in financially. At first, Davidson said he knew nothing about the murders and that he wasn't even at the house when they occurred, saying quote... I'm a convicted felon. I had a gun in my house, selling dope. That's what I do, sell dope. I ain't gonna lie. I'm a gang member and all that, dude. I don't kill people, though. After Davidson was informed that Cobbins, Thomas, and Coleman had been arrested, his story changed. Davidson said he was there during the crimes, but he didn't participate. He said, quote, They had both of them in the backseat tied up. I'm telling them, man, y'all, stupid as fuck. Davidson said he left his house and went to a neighbor's house to get high. He denied raping Shannon even though his DNA was found inside of her. Davidson tried to make it seem like he was caught in the middle of something he had no control over and he said he tried to save Shannon. Davidson said, She grabbed me. She touched my arm. She was asking me, was she going to die? I told her it was going to be alright. I didn't think my brother was going to kill that girl, man. That's all she said. She ain't want to die. And I just couldn't take that shit. I left. Letalvis Cobbins took the stand in his own defense, against his attorney's advice. And you heard some of this testimony at the beginning of this episode. Cobbins was the only defendant who chose to take the stand. This prompted his attorneys to ask the judge if they could be replaced, but the judge refused to allow it. Prior to his trial, Cobbins pled guilty to lesser counts of facilitating the kidnapping of Chris and Shannon, stealing the forerunner, and raping Shannon. On the witness stand, Cobbins admitted to the carjacking, but claimed he didn't know it was planned until it happened. He said he refused to participate, but ended up doing so under pressure from his brother, Davidson. Cobbins said he told Davidson what he was doing was crazy, but nobody listened. He said he was in the bedroom, sitting next to Shannon, When she asked him what was going on and he told her he didn't know. He said Shannon asked him where Chris was and he told her once again that he didn't know. Cobbins then claimed that Shannon offered to perform oral sex on him if he would persuade the others to let her go. He said she was tied up at this time and then he orally raped her. He said she begged him to free her but he was too afraid of his brother. He denied killing Chris or Shannon and said that he witnessed Davidson choking Shannon. Cobbins adamantly denied that Daphne Sutton saw him at the Chipman Street house the day after the murders, when she claims Davidson handed her a bag of clothes. Cobbins' older sister, Misha Davidson, testified on his behalf, saying he was an abused and neglected child. She said his father was not around and his mother was on drugs. She apologized to the families for her brother's actions. At the time of the trial, Cobbins' mother was deceased and his father was contacted but said he wanted nothing to do with his son. On the stand, Cobbin said, quote, "'I am sorry. I am so sorry. I deserve to be punished for what I did.'" Cobbin's attorney told the jury that his client was a coward, a rapist, and a liar, but said that prosecutors, quote, "'Haven't shown you he's a killer.'" George Thomas's attorney took a different approach and presented no testimony in his defense. Instead, his attorney told jurors that the state failed to present evidence that he carjacked, raped, or killed anyone. In previous statements, Thomas claimed that he learned from Cobbins about Davidson's plan to commit the carjacking just before they left to carry it out. Thomas claims he had no involvement in the carjacking and that he was asleep around 5 p.m. when Davidson, Cobbins, and Boyd left. Thomas said they returned to the house in an SUV and they had a white guy and a white girl with them. He said the white guy and the girl had blindfolds over their eyes and their hands were tied. Thomas said he put, quote, two and two together when he saw Chris and Shannon taken into the house and Shannon taken into the bedroom. He claims he said to them, quote, you are all really tripping now. And then he went into the back bedroom to listen to music and to smoke marijuana. Thomas said that Chris was taken, quote, outside or out back and that Boyd, who had a gun, took Chris outside by himself and got into a car with him. When Boyd returned about a half hour later, Chris was not with him. Thomas also said in statements that when he came to the Chipman Street house the following day to get his things, nobody was in the house. Before he left, he said he saw Sutton come over and get a bag of clothes from Davidson, although he claimed not to know where the clothes had come from. Thomas's statement was contradictory, because he says nobody was at the house when he was there to get his things, but then he said he saw Sutton get a bag of clothes from Davidson. Thomas also said that he slept in the living room on the night of the 6th and the 7th, but denies hearing Shannon scream for help in the next room. When detectives questioned Thomas as to whether he should have done something about what happened, Thomas looked at the detectives in the eyes and said, quote, fuck that white girl. She didn't mean anything to me. You cops come into our neighborhood and kill us, so why should I get involved with some things that's none of my business? During Thomas's trial, prosecutors played recordings of a phone conversation between Thomas and his now ex-girlfriend, Stacey Lawson. During the call, Lawson says, quote, Why didn't anybody fucking call police? Why didn't you? Thomas replied, Come on now. Lawson said, quote, That girl did not deserve the shit she was fucking put through. Neither did that boy. Thomas replied, quote, should've, would've, could've, but didn't. Thomas also said in a recorded statement that he knew Davidson and Boyd were planning to carjack someone, saying, quote, when they said they was leaving to go get the car, I'm like, okay, you know what I'm saying. And then when they came back with them folks, I'm like, okay, no, they steal a car, but not the people that's in it. Vanessa Coleman's attorney tried portraying her client as a victim held captive by the male defendants. She said Coleman did not see or hear much of anything, which seems almost impossible given how small the house was. Coleman claimed she never even saw Chris Newsom, but said she snuck into the bedroom once and gave Shannon a glass of water. She claimed she wanted to call police, but she was too afraid. Coleman said she saw Davidson break Shannon's neck right in front of her even though evidence confirmed that Shannon did not suffer a broken neck. Coleman claimed that Davidson and Cobbins threatened to kill her if she called police. During her statement to police, Coleman said she was not present during the carjacking, and that statement is supported by the male defendants. Coleman said that when they arrived back at Davidson's house after the carjacking, Davidson had a bank card in his hand. Shortly after that, Davidson and Thomas left the house leaving Shannon inside Davidson's bedroom. Coleman said the men were gone for about 30 minutes. While they were gone, Coleman said Cobbins went into the back bedroom where Shannon was being held. She said Davidson and Thomas returned to the house carrying an empty gas can. She says Davidson went into the back bedroom for about 10 minutes and then left again with Thomas, taking the gas can with them. She said the men returned about 30 minutes later and both appeared to have blood on their clothes. Coleman said that Davidson and Thomas put their clothes into the washing machine at that time. She said she overheard Davidson saying to Thomas that he would need him to do something so he could trust him. Coleman said the two men left the home again and returned with garbage bags. The following day, Coleman said she saw Davidson, Cobbins, and Thomas drag Shannon into the living room. But in that same statement, Coleman later said it was only Davidson who dragged Shannon into the living room. She said Davidson then sprayed bleach into Shannon's mouth and then Davidson and Thomas proceeded to tie Shannon up in a fetal position. Coleman said she then went into the back bedroom and she quote, could hear like paper and stuff. It was like garbage bags. You could hear them taking them apart and stuff. Coleman said the next day, Monday, January 8th, Davidson had left the house and the large plastic garbage can had been moved from outside into the kitchen. Coleman claimed she didn't know that Shannon was inside the garbage can and that she never heard any sounds coming from it. Eric Boyd was the first of the five defendants to be tried, but he was the only defendant who was tried in federal court. All of the other four defendants implicated Boyd in the rapes and murders, but their claims could not be used against him in court unless there was corroborating evidence to support the claims, which the prosecution did not have. Boyd's cousin, Nicole Mathis, whose car Boyd used while committing the carjacking, helped link Boyd to the crimes. Despite this, police lacked physical evidence on Boyd which they had on Davidson, Cobbins, Thomas, and Coleman. The only direct evidence they had on Boyd were his statements regarding the detailed information he gave about the crimes after being picked up by police while he was on his way to deliver food to Davidson. The information Boyd provided to police would have only been known by the perpetrators, but Boyd claimed he only knew that information because Davidson had told him everything. He said Davidson told him that Shannon was tied up in the back bedroom and Cobbins, Thomas, and he had gang raped her. He gave conflicting stories about who was involved in killing Chris Newsome, first saying that Thomas took Chris out of the house and shot him. Then he said Davidson told him he poured gasoline all over Chris and set him on fire. The only thing Boyd would admit to was being at the Chipman Street house while Shannon was still alive. People who attended the trial were outraged at Boyd's behavior in court. There were times when he would turn and look at the Christian family, smile at them, and mouth, quote, bring it on. Boyd attempted to get a change in venue for his trial due to racism, but the request was denied. Boyd was the most experienced criminal in the group. His involvement in the criminal justice system began at the age of 14. Boyd's previous record included nine separate armed robbery charges. Federal prosecutors had evidence linking Boyd to the crimes against Chris and Shannon. For one, the vehicle he borrowed from his cousin was seen at Davidson's house right after the carjacking and when the murders occurred. Additionally, it was known that none of the defendants had a car, and a vehicle was needed in order to get to the Washington Ridge apartment complex where Chris and Shannon were carjacked and kidnapped. Also, Boyd shared intimate details about the crimes with police. Although Boyd said he only knew the information because Davidson had shared it with him, this seemed highly unlikely given the short amount of time Davidson and Boyd had known each other. Bullets had been found inside the car that Boyd borrowed from his cousin, although his cousin had thrown them away. Boyd helped Davidson hide from police and attempted to get him a ride out of town. Although Boyd lived in the area, he also hid at a friend's house, in the woods, and in a vacant house that he and Davidson had broken into. If Boyd wasn't involved in the crimes, why did he hide out instead of just staying at his own home? Davidson, Cobbins, Thomas, Coleman, and Boyd had all faced charges and gone through trial for their alleged involvement in the brutal crimes against Chris Newsom and Shannon Christian. On October 28, 2009, nearly three years after the murders, Lamarcus Davidson was found guilty and sentenced to death for four capital murders, two first-degree felony murder charges, and two premeditated first-degree murders. In June of 2010, Davidson was given an additional 80 years in prison to be served consecutively. On August 25, 2009, Latavis Cobbins was found guilty of murder and was eligible for the death penalty for his first-degree murder conviction. The following day, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. On December 8, 2009, Thomas was found guilty on multiple counts and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. On May 13, 2010, Vanessa Coleman was acquitted of first-degree murder, but found guilty on lesser charges. She was sentenced to 53 years in prison. The judge in Coleman's case called her a street-smart teenager with no regard for human life. He went on to say, quote, "'We cannot tolerate this kind of crime. Anybody that thinks they can be put into this situation and do nothing about it, I'm telling you it's unacceptable.'" The judge said the 53-year sentence was necessary to protect the public from Coleman, who is a danger to society. He said Coleman made the choice to stay in the house instead of leaving to get help. He said, quote, She was young, but you know, Miss Coleman was not your typical 18-year-old who had just graduated from high school and was leaving for the first time to go to college. This was one of the most troubling, horrific, shocking criminal episodes that I've ever encountered. In 2008, Eric Boyd was convicted by the U.S. District Court and sentenced to 18 years in prison, which was the maximum allowable under the law for Boyd's convictions. It would seem that justice was served for the most part, with three of the five defendants never having an opportunity at freedom again. However, these cases were not over, not by a long shot. Knox County Criminal Circuit Judge Richard Baumgartner presided over the trials of Davidson, Cobbins, Thomas, and Coleman. Baumgartner was a highly respected judge who had helped to establish the Knox County Drug Court, which has served as a model for other counties across the state. He was instrumental in allowing cameras into Tennessee courtrooms for the first time. Baumgartner was known for taking on high-profile cases, including that of Knoxville, Tennessee's only accused serial killer, Thomas D. Husky, Known as Zooman. Man, Baumgartner was known as a brilliant man who was admired for his work and ethics. He won re-election twice after being appointed to the bench in 1992. Rumors began going around about Baumgartner's drinking and his wandering eye as he was a married man. Security officer Meredith Driscoll reported that Judge Baumgartner would often show up for work with the smell of alcohol on his breath. Driscoll said that fellow criminal court judge Mary Beth Leibowitz would come into Baumgartner's office to make sure he was sober enough to work. Leibowitz denied this claim but admitted she knew Baumgartner was struggling with alcohol. Driscoll also said that as this was happening, Baumgartner was becoming increasingly abusive toward court staff. Baumgartner's alcohol abuse was worse than anyone knew and eventually resulted in pancreatitis. The judge began treating his pain with hydrocodone and his usage of the drug increased along with his drinking. Baumgartner was getting prescriptions for the drug from numerous doctors. Dr. Dean Conley, Baumgartner's gastroenterologist at the time, advised Baumgartner to retire or take medical leave after Baumgartner told him he was addicted to painkillers. Baumgartner refused, which led to Dr. Conley dropping the judge as a patient. Although Baumgartner refused to retire, He did eventually enter a rehab facility under the guise that he was taking medical leave to treat his pancreatitis. Baumgartner returned to work about a month after he left for rehab, and Judge Leibowitz said he seemed to be back to his old self. In the fall of 2008, Baumgartner had surgery on his foot. His admin assistant, Jennifer Judy, said she noticed something was wrong after the surgery. She said, quote, he became visibly worse to the point that he could not function properly or carry on a conversation at times. She said he'd be fine for a few days and then go back to not functioning properly. Dina Castleman, one of the former graduates of Baumgartner's drug court, visited him in search of a job in order to avoid jail time. Baumgartner told Castleman that he had a problem with his toe and had run out of pain medicine. The judge gave Castleman $200 and asked her to get some hydrocodone for him. Castleman took the money and never returned with the pain medicine. She ended up in jail after the ordeal. Baumgardner went back to visiting numerous doctors and scoring prescriptions for pain pills. Meredith Driscoll said that Baumgardner learned of someone on court staff who had been prescribed painkillers to treat a medical condition. Driscoll said the judge actually went into the employee's office and took the painkillers from her. Coworkers reported that Baumgartner had taken so many of her pills that she could barely function at work at times. The situation got so bad that the employee asked her doctor to change her pain prescription to a less desirable drug in order to stop Baumgartner from stealing her medication. Dina Castleman ended up writing Judge Baumgartner a letter from jail to apologize for taking his money. The judge responded by asking if he could see her and that was the beginning of a sexual relationship between the two of them. The judge enjoyed other perks as a result of his relationship with Castleman. She would score painkillers for him. As all of this was going on, Baumgartner continued working a full docket of criminal cases, including the Newsom and Christian cases. Jennifer Judy, his admin assistant, would keep a close eye on the judge and reschedule his calendar if he was having a particularly bad day. In the fall of 2009, Baumgartner requested money from the director of the drug court to buy a cell phone. This was an unusual request because all judges were given government-issued cell phones. Regardless, the request was granted and Baumgartner began using the additional cell phone for drug transactions. As the Newsom-Christian trials drew near, in October of 2009, Dina Castleman was hospitalized for a blood infection. Some of the nurses who had been watching the highly publicized trials on TV recognized Baumgartner as a regular visitor of Castleman's during her hospital stay. The nurses said that Castleman and Baumgartner appeared to be high during their visits, and eventually Baumgartner was banned from visiting. Eventually, the staff changed their minds and allowed Baumgartner to continue visiting. Not long after this, prescription drugs were found inside of Castleman's hospital room. She told staff the drugs belonged to Baumgartner. Castleman was arrested, and Baumgartner sent an attorney he knew to represent her. By 2009, Cobbins had been sentenced to life without parole. Davidson was sentenced to death, and the jury for Thomas’s trial was being selected in Chattanooga, Tennessee. For the Chattanooga jury selection, Baumgartner had requested to stay in a different hotel than everyone else, saying he needed a hotel that allowed smoking. Prosecutor Leland Price recalled that Baumgartner showed up late for jury selection. The judge was also spotted having dinner with Dina Castleman, and it was discovered later that she had been staying at his hotel room during Thomas's jury selection. In December 2009, Thomas was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Baumgartner moved on to another high-profile criminal case, and it was reported by Driscoll that the judge was nodding off at times during the trial. In January of 2010, shortly before Vanessa Coleman's trial, one of Castleman's neighbors, Aaron McLean, said that Baumgartner was a regular visitor of Castleman's at her trailer home. McLean figured Baumgartner was visiting Castleman for sex and figured this was likely the reason Castleman never seemed to spend much time in jail, despite her numerous arrests. On one particular day, McLean saw Castleman break into her neighbor's home and came out carrying an Xbox gaming system. McClain called police and reported the incident, but Castleman was gone before the police arrived. Three days later, Castleman returned to her trailer home, and McClain called police again to let them know she was back. This time, McClain spoke with Detective Mark Watson, who had issued a warrant for Castleman's arrest. Shortly after their phone conversation, Judge Baumgardner arrived at Castleman's home. McLean called Detective Watson back and told him Baumgartner was at Castleman's house, but McLean said it didn't seem like Watson was too concerned over this. Deputies arrived at Castleman's house to arrest her, but the judge left shortly before they arrived. A review of Detective Watson's report concerning this incident made no mention of McLean's phone calls about Baumgartner being at Castleman's house. Baumgartner was becoming more and more aggressive in his pursuit of pain pills, Meredith Driscoll was out on medical leave after having a hysterectomy. In January of 2010, Baumgardner contacted Driscoll and told her to put pills in a brown paper bag for him to pick up. When she refused, he told her in a threatening manner that she was going to do this for him. Ultimately, Driscoll gave in because she was afraid of being fired. Shortly after returning from medical leave, Driscoll decided she had had enough. In March of 2010, she quit. Before she left, she told her supervisors again that Baumgartner's pain pill addiction was out of hand and that this was the reason she was quitting. By the time Vanessa Coleman's trial began, Judge Baumgartner's addiction had become more transparent. The judge was incoherent at times during jury selection and prosecutor Takesha Fitzgerald reported seeing Baumgartner weaving in his car while driving. In July of 2010, Baumgardner sentenced Coleman to 53 years in prison for her role in the crimes against Chris Newsom and Shannon Christian. After the Newsom-Christian trials concluded, it was discovered that Baumgartner was taking long lunch breaks to have sex with Castleman and score pain pills from a former drug court defendant named Christopher Gibson. After his long lunch breaks, Baumgartner would return to court. Not long after this time, Castleman was arrested again on charges of soliciting truckers. Castleman turned on Baumgartner and later told the TBI about incidents involving the judge, including how he had allegedly lied about Castleman's drug test results to help her out. In June of 2010, Christopher Gibson's ex wife, Darlene Gray, stopped by his house to collect child support. She recalled that Baumgartner was there when she arrived. Gray was able to take a picture of Baumgartner's vehicle in Gibson's driveway, showing his government-issued license tags. Gray gave the photo to her attorney, Russell Green, who coincidentally had just represented Vanessa Coleman in front of Judge Baumgartner. It was advised that Gray report the incident herself since she was the one who actually saw Baumgartner's car at Gibson's house. The following month, Gray's home was burglarized. She believed her ex-husband, Christopher Gibson, had broken into her house. When police arrived, she told them about the relationship between Gibson and Judge Baumgartner and showed them the picture of Baumgartner's vehicle in Gibson's driveway. The matter was eventually turned over to the TBI. In January of 2011, the TBI raided Gibson's house and found a gun. This was a violation of Gibson's parole, and the TBI used this as leverage to get him to turn on Judge Baumgartner. And he did just that. Gibson confessed to everything and took a plea deal, which came with a four-year prison sentence. The following day, TBI agents visited Baumgartner at his chambers to inform him that he was under investigation. Shortly thereafter, Baumgartner announced he was taking a medical leave of absence. In March 2011, Baumgartner agreed to resign from the bench and plead guilty to one count of misconduct for illegally buying pills from Gibson. No charges were brought against Baumgartner for his affair with and aid of Dina Castleman. Once Baumgartner left the bench, defendants who had been convicted in trials overseen by him began filing for new trials based on the judge's alleged errors and conduct during their trials. In December of 2011, Special Judge John Kerry Blackwood granted requests from Davidson, Cobbins, Thomas, and Coleman. Eventually, these requests made their way up to the Tennessee Supreme Court, and ultimately, Thomas and Coleman were granted new trials. The requests from Davidson and Cobbins were denied. In November of 2012, Vanessa Coleman was convicted a second time for facilitation of aggravated kidnapping, facilitation of rape, and the facilitation of the murder of Shannon Christian, but not of Chris Newsom. These were lesser charges than her first conviction, and as such, she received a lighter sentence. Coleman was sentenced to 35 years in prison with credit for time served. Coleman came up for parole in 2014 but was denied. She'll be eligible again in 2019. In May of 2013, Thomas was again convicted on all counts with lesser charges on one of the counts. He was sentenced again to life in prison but this time he would be eligible for parole after 51 years the following month thomas was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences for the murder of chris Newsom and shannon christian and concurrent 25-year sentences for rape thomas appealed to the supreme court but the court declined to hear his case in may of 2013 Baumgartner began serving his six-month prison sentence at the Gilmer Medium Security Federal Prison in Glenville, West Virginia. He was released in November of that year. Davidson, Thomas, and Boyd all appealed their convictions to no avail. Boyd's first parole hearing was set for 2022. However, in April of 2018, a report was released stating that a grand jury had indicted Boyd on 36 counts including first-degree felony murder, first-degree premeditated murder, especially aggravated robbery, especially aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated rape. Boyd is currently awaiting trial in the Knox County Jail. His trial is set to begin in January of 2019. On January 23, 2018, former Judge Richard Baumgartner was found unresponsive by family members there were no signs of foul play. Shannon Christian's parents, Gary and Dina, divorced sometime after the trials concluded. Gary Christian established the Shepherds RC Riding Club in honor of his daughter. The club members wear vests with large patches featuring a strong female angel. The club hosts an annual Shannon and Chris Memorial Ride to raise money for charity. The club advocates self-defense and personal safety. In 2008, a memorial foundation called the Shannon Gale Christian Foundation was established in Shannon's memory. The foundation provides an annual scholarship for a Farragut high school senior to attend the University of Tennessee. A memorial scholarship in Chris Newsom's name is given annually to a Halls high school baseball player. The song Beautiful by the Knoxville post-grunge band Ten Years was dedicated to the memories of Newsom and Christian. The Newsom and Christian families helped to pass the 2014 Shannon Christian Act, which puts new restrictions on criminal defendants and their attorneys when portraying a victim in a negative manner in front of a jury. Also in 2014, the Chris Newsom Act was passed. The act eliminates the need for a judge's signature on a jury verdict after a unanimous verdict is delivered. In September of 2008, Waste Connections bought the home on Chipman Street with plans to build a memorial park at the site. Adkins Demolitions volunteered to demolish the home free of charge, which they did the following month. Waste Connections followed through with their plans, and a memorial park in Chris and Shannon's honor now sits at the site where the young couple were murdered. Chris Newsom was laid to rest at Woodhaven Memorial Gardens in Claxton, Tennessee. Shannon Christian was laid to rest at Berry Highland West Memorial Park in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's it for this episode of Murderish. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this case, especially your opinions on Vanessa Coleman's involvement and subsequent sentence. Be sure to head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group or Twitter to discuss this case. You can find me on Facebook by searching Murderish Discussion Group and on Twitter at Murderish Pod. I'm also on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you're enjoying Murderish, do me the biggest favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about Murderish. I'd also appreciate it if you left the show a positive rating and review in iTunes. You can also support the show by supporting sponsors. AMC Shudder sponsored this episode. To try Shudder for free, head over to Shudder.com, that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, and enter promo code MURDERISH. If you'd like to take your support for the show a step further, head over to patreon.com slash murderish to see some cool perks that are available in exchange for your monthly support. If you become a show patron, you'll have immediate access to Patreon-exclusive bonus content, as well as other Patreon perks including... Murderish t-shirts, stickers, magnets, a shout out on the podcast, discount codes at the Murderish merch store and other cool stuff. If you'd like to sport a Murderish t-shirt or sip coffee from a Murderish mug, head over to murderishpodcast.threadless.com to check out my online merch store. I recently added a bunch of new designs to the store. A link to the merch store can also be found in episode show notes email any comments or questions you have to murderish at gmail.com that's murderish j-a-m-i at gmail.com murderish is mixed and mastered by john Buchennis of audio editing solutions music in this episode was composed by nico of we talk of dreams i want to send a huge thank you to friend of the show steve field for his help researching and writing this episode As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I hope you all have a nice holiday and a safe new year. And remember, listening to this show doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.